0: afternoon and good evening to the rest of you. We are back for another episode of Bitcoin Magazine Live. It is I, your host, Q, coming to you yet again from my mother's basement, and I'm joined by my co-host, P. How's it going, P?
1: Going quite well, quite well.
0: And we have a special guest today who wrote a a fascinating article out of, uh, based on the data coming out of China and the fact that hash rate may or may not be coming out of China yet again. Uh, P, do you want to
1: introduce Zach? Yeah, absolutely. So, Zach, I... uh... I always appreciate your work. My understanding, you started your career um, as an analyst for Massari, and then you were at Blockstream as a technical writer. You know, working on the Liquid network and things like that. Green Wallet. Then you moved over to CoinDesk, and now you are focused on exclusively on the Bitcoin mining industry. You've had articles and tweets published in New York Times, Financial Times, The Independent, and additional ones.
2: Yeah, that's 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 a pretty good rundown. It covers all the bases there. My journey through the spaces sort of sort of started like general crypto stuff and then professionally narrowed more to Bitcoin. Bitcoin was always, you know, my primary like individual focus, but it can be sometimes harder to find, you know, a a good job with a good team in Bitcoin instead of as opposed to the broader crypto industry. I was lucky enough to work with a couple of great teams in Bitcoin. I spent some time covering Bitcoin market structure and mining at Coindesk uh, and then sort of went uh, even narrower into the Bitcoin mining rabbit hole uh, briefly through Compass. And now I spend most of my time uh, with the Brains team who are, you know, obviously some of the best out there. So I'm lucky to be working with them on a bunch of stuff.
0: Zach, I'm I'm curious if there's anything, you know, from your past that you want to touch on or highlight that you're really proud of or that people who may not be as familiar with your work that you'd you'd point to them and have them check out? Mm, That's an interesting question.
2: So the last bear market uh, was probably like one of the seminal times for like Bitcoin podcasting, I guess. Um, You had, you know, just dozens of Bitcoin podcasts. And I joined the fray for a bit. I used to host a podcast just interviewing people I thought were cool and, you know, building cool stuff during the Throws of uh, you know depressed Bitcoin market. Uh, I don't do that anymore. That that's been stopped for a while. But I think we got you know to like thirty or forty solid episodes. Uh, used to be called the Coin Pod. a random side project. Most um, people, I guess, probably recognize or know me if they do recognize or know me at all from some of the shit posting I do on Twitter, which you know that has its pros and cons. I guess, like Pete mentioned, some of those tweets have <laughs> made it into articles published by mainstream news outlets, which I guess it's kind of fun and probably not great all at the same time. Um, but I also try to like write longer form of thoughts uh, to sort of balance out the rankest shit posting. Uh, and you guys, Bitcoin Magazine, are more than kind to give me a platform to publish some of that stuff. Uh, shout out to Pete also on editorial who takes all my drafts and gives me cool headlines and uh, all that stuff. Some of the people over at CoinDesk I used to write with. No, I'm, I'm terrible at writing headlines. So thanks, Pete, for always giving me cool ideas.
0: Shout out, Chihuahua. You to man. Zach, the topic that we wanted to really dive into is your most recent article that you wrote for Bitcoin Magazine. I've thrown it in the chat over on YouTube, and we'll, we'll share it with the Rumble and Twitch fam as well if you haven't already. And I'm just going to make sure I get the actual title of the article proper. But it is why we can't trust hash rate data from China. Um, do you want to maybe tee up some of the data that you're talking about before we really dive into the meat of this?
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess maybe a good place to start is why we talk about mining in China at all. Uh, I can sometimes, you know, get lost. Bitcoin mining can kind of be a bubble, uh, inside of the Bitcoin bubble, um, to its own sometimes. And historically the, the idea is China has always been like the hub for mining, uh, in the world in two key ways. One um, actual manufacturing of Bitcoin mining hardware and also, too, for like the use of that hardware, the actual hash rate coming online um, and, you know, minting uh, new Bitcoins through block rewards and uh, adding new blocks to the blockchain, processing transactions, all those duties that miners have. Um, and those two things are sort of related, you know, the proximity to where all the machines are made. It sort of makes sense, you know, that a bulk of the hash rate sort of also lives there. Um, And for years, you know, most of Bitcoin's history, that was always kind of a thorn in the side of the Bitcoin economy, Uh, I guess. Endless articles, you know, at least one or two a quarter would come out um, and endless mm, like secular fiat prominent personalities and also, you know, outspoken just sort of joker clowns in the crypto industry, like leadership from Ripple particularly, but always cite, you know, China's control and death grip on Bitcoin industry because of how much hash rate was located there. Uh, so do not going to on that forever, I guess, uh, but that's just, that's the premise why people care about China so much in mining. China has, you know, sort of limited and restricted and sort of banned uh, Bitcoin mining and crypto generally and transactions and all these sorts of things multiple times over the history of Bitcoin. Uh, like I think at least a dozen different times, but last May, uh, was sort of the the biggest and most significant ban of Bitcoin mining sort of throughout the whole country, and the market reacted very quickly and very significantly um, as sort of price very quickly fell and over like a, about a month period we saw hash rate uh, a lot of hash rate go offline as miners you know were in China were legally required to sort of unplug and relocate their machines and you know since then those miners some of them have relocated and other new miners have come online and we've rebounded. We meaning hash rate, um, but that was that was a pretty seminal event in like the history of Bitcoin because a massive amount of hash rate that is that had sat in one geographic location for most of Bitcoin's history was you know officially banned and forced to either just stay offline or relocate somewhere else if it wanted to come back online. Yeah, that's the premise, I guess. So you know, the big question now is like, okay, so where is all this hash rate? And people, uh, you know, some more serious academics than I am. Uh, but also, you know, people like me who just like to monitor this stuff, love to analyze uh, trends and growth and changes in the network like this. And that was a pretty significant trend. And analyzing, you know, the event itself and, you know, the aftershocks of it is pretty interesting stuff. Um, you, you know, if assuming that we can actually measure and uh, gauge, you know, the event itself and its size and impact and the aftershocks of it um, and that sort of that measuring the event and its aftershocks is... Uh, you know kind of why we're having this conversation today. Like what data do or I guess don't we have available to us and how reliable is or isn't it? And kind of addressing a, a prominent you know data set that's been referenced a lot uh that comes out of Cambridge's Center for Alternative Finance is you know the, the thrust of what of the article that I wrote and you know what it touches on and some of the problems that I think are pretty apparent with you know, too heavily relying on that that data. I guess one thing I should say is this, I didn't just like sort of write this article, you know, out of spite because I didn't like their data, which I don't particularly like their data. But the, the main motivation for me writing this is because back in May, you know, when all this hash rate came offline, you would see, like, I, I saw so many articles uh, saying, like, there's no hash rate in China. And they would cite, because at the time, Cambridge updated, their, Cambridge updated their mining data to say China has 0% of Bitcoin's hash rate. And everyone thought, wow, that's an explosive number. And if it's true, it, it is, uh, or if it were true. And there were so many headlines about it. And now, fast forward to the present day, Cambridge updated their data again and said like, you know, China has somewhere a couple percent over 20% of Bitcoin's ha- uh, hash rate. You know, Just again, poof, it's back. And both of those events, like the 0% and then poof, 20% is back. Sort of really irritated me because, uh, and I know I'm not the only one in the mining community because, you know, miners know that's not true. People who work for mining companies and many of those individuals have said publicly that's not true. Um, But this data was, you know, paraded around by many, many, many journalists. um, And I don't think it's, you know, sort of gotten its fair uh, refutation and rebuttal. Uh, And that's, you know, I'll stop ranting now, sorry, but that's, you know, why I wanted to write this article. So hopefully that sort of crystallizes, or crystallizes, distills why you know we're talking about China and hash rate and the particular data set that I don't really care for.
0: To be honest with you, I, I, towards the end of this conversation, maybe once we wrap up uh, the conversation of, over the article, I'm going to go down that rabbit hole of like the question of should a nation state actually have, or within its borders, have 50% of the hash rate. But until then, uh, let's dive deeper, deeper into this data, because you introduced... Two fundamental issues with the data. A, there was never 0% hash rate in, in China. And then B, the data that they're collecting is just faulty to begin with. Um, I'll kind of let you choose your own adventure here and, and which side of this coin do you want to talk about first?
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, I think, well, let's talk about like never 0% uh, first, I guess that maybe makes the most sense. Um, and, you know, to Cambridge's Center for Alternative Finance, the CCAFS Credit, like they're always very careful to report their analysis and data as you know China's reported share of hash rate, and that that reporting comes from a small group of miners that sort of submits data to Cambridge, and Cambridge also checks the like the IP addresses of the miners producing the hash rate or managing the hash rate um, that's sort of included in their research. And based on you know that sliver of data, Cambridge saw okay, there's zero percent hash rate in China. Lots of problems with that that you know we can talk to, uh, to next. But the reason why there was never no res- or like the reason we know there was never zero percent is because I guess prima facie, um, like miners are pretty resilient, I guess. Uh, so this may be you know sort of like a philosophical or existential um, argument. But, you know, you kind of have to at least assume that there's like one or two percent of Bitcoin's hash rate, like anywhere, um, any like country, I guess, or even like continent, because of the economic incentives and the utility of mining. And, you know, especially with over like nearly 50 percent, I guess, at some point over 50 percent of Bitcoin's hash rate in China, like within a month, it's not going to drop to zero. That's just a, a logistical impossibility. Um, but that's sort of like a weaker point. The stronger point is that miners knew it was not zero and many of them said so publicly. Uh, in the article, I linked to a couple tweets from, um, well, it's on Twitter, so I don't wanna name, I guess I can already name them, uh, but Kevin over at Foundry, like one of the most well-connected, most insightful people in the Bitcoin mining industry was like, just said, you know, no, this is like, this is not the case. Uh, another sort of non-mining specific researchers pointed out problems with this data. Um, I chimed in uh, a bit um, but case in point, like the, the point is that miners knew there was more, there was a non zero amount of hash rate in China. Um, and Cambridge addressed these like claims, you know, in some of their articles or blog posts about the data that they, that they published. Uh, and they just basically dismissed them as, you know, too difficult to verify. Uh, which I guess sort of begs the question, like if your data set relies on, verifying hash rate geographic location with miners and miners are telling you your data is inaccurate then you know maybe the difficult maybe it's not difficulty maybe it's a process error um, so yeah I guess you know that's all there's to say really about no zero percent hash rate in China uh, people knew it was it was greater than zero and said so um, and I, I, it, it, on Twitter I'll give um, the researchers their credit on Twitter they said you know because in the article, I say these claims weren't taken you know, seriously, which I think is you know, a pretty fair characterization. They didn't like that characterization on Twitter. They said so after they published the article. Um, but, you know, I think if they did take them seriously, they would have worked to either adjust their data set uh, at the time that they're reporting 0% hash rate in China, uh, adjust their methodology, uh, maybe, um, or, you know, do any number of other things differently. Uh, And based on the fact that they didn't and still reported 0%, even though other miners said that's not the case, you know, that leads me to cool if they didn't take them as seriously as they should have. Um, So yeah, there never was 0% hash rate in China and there still isn't probably never will be. I think that's pretty safe bet.
1: Why do you think that they, that they chose to do that? Do you think that they are acting in good faith or do you feel like it was a kind of willful ignorance?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I don't, um, I don't want to pretend, you know, to kind of know what, what they're thinking is on this point. And I definitely think they are, you know, acting in reasonably good faith, but I, I doubt they're sitting there going through the process of compiling this data from, you know, the some of the miners that contribute to them, like in an effort to de- deliberately <laughs> misinform the Bitcoin community. Um, but I think it's more akin to, uh, you know, something like um, like pop science instead of, you know, arduous academic research. Um, even though I know, you know, the process of collecting this data is not simple, even though it is uh, broken, which may be part of the reason why it's not simple. Um, but I don't think, you know, I knew this was malicious or anything like that. It's just, uh, as I explained a little bit later in the article, it, it, it was... Also like, you know, very convenient, like it fit the narrative. Um, and some of this is not, you know, all on them. It's on the miners who are also, you know, like you were, miners, some of these miners are operating in what was previously the largest, one of the largest destinations or locations of pasture in the world. And now the most aggressively anti-mining locations in the world. So why would they report like any mining activity whatsoever in this area? And, you know, part of the problem is that Cambridge has very few, if any good checks on the data that they're receiving. Um, and the other part is, you know, Cambridge has this data, you know, they're following their rules and methodology They come to, you know, the data gets spit out and 0% hash rate. fits the, fits the narrative at the time. So, you know, why not run with it? Um, I just, I think it's, you know, probably an important exercise to try and collect this data. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I guess I'm glad like they're continuing to publish this on a regular basis. Uh, but also at the end of the day, like the data is just not true in many aspects. So uh, what they're thinking, I'm not really sure. Are they malicious actors? I definitely don't think so. Uh, But are there problems with their data? I mean, self-evidently, yes. So,
1: yeah. I noticed that in the new report, they also, instead of basically having just a completely new data set, they represented it as went from zero to this much higher number, which I thought was a strange choice. Yeah.
2: And that's like, and that's how it got played up in the news media also, uh, and like, like the, this resurgence in hash rate in China or something like that. Um, and it in the article I, I explained you know, a couple possibilities, uh, possible scenarios for like how that resurgence could have actually happened and why all those scenarios are just, you know, insane. <laughs> um, so like the hash rate that's in China uh, as you know, probably almost ninety nine percent of it has been there the whole time. Um, But the data was, you know, poorly collected and or misreported by miners to Cambridge and then Cambridge to, you know, the broader public and all these sorts of things. So it's, yeah, I I guess maybe that's as good of a segue as I can give to the next part, which is like, you know, what are the problems with the data? I kind of maybe touched on directly or indirectly those problems a couple of times, but um, at the end of the day, like the data is just, you know, not super reliable and there are some important reasons for why that's the case.
0: Zach, I'm I'm curious if these, and this is purely speculative, if, you know, these companies that did retain a hash rate in China, if they are more state opera, operated or privately owned or just like individual miners who are doing like one-off operations, like where would you, based on your understanding, assess the most likely uh, owners of those minor op- mining operations in China?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so there is, there's lots of speculation, you know, that some, like whatever hash rate is left in China is, you know, privileged and politically supported or at least approved by, um, you know, regulators and, uh, people with power. I don't think that's mostly the case. Like, sure. There are probably some CCP party officials who are mining some Bitcoin, like probably like, I mean, without a question, probably yes. Um, but I think mostly the, the hazard rate in China is like small scale sort of lean operations, um, not necessarily mobile operations, but just stuff that, you know, doesn't consume insane amounts of power. It is, you know, as a result, not as easily detected. I mean, there, you know, there's videos of people like just out in nature by a stream uh, running like one or two ASICs with, you know, very, very sort of bootleg rustic mining operations. That's, you know, probably not the norm. Uh, but just you know, smaller operations um, in general uh, that are less difficult or less that are uh, more difficult, less easy to detect. But you know, is some of the hash rate probably controlled by party officials? Yeah, probably some of it. Um, how much? I think definitely minority. Um, but that's mostly just a guess because I don't chat with CCP party officials actually really ever at all. <laughs> just sort of a yeah, deductive guess.
1: Wait, wait, wait. I'll keep them on speed said- dial. You said, uh, really ever at all. When do you talk to CCP party officials?
2: (laughs) Yeah, true. I I guess I should make that even more definite. Yeah, not at all, actually. Unless, you know, unknowingly, some of my mining colleagues are party officials, but that seems unlikely. Um, But, like, I think, like, there's, like, so many governments are mining Bitcoin already right now that, you know, that China, you know, its historic position in the Bitcoin mining industry and its proximity to all this mining hardware manufacturing that at least like some of their party officials aren't like at least mining for a hobby or maybe research purposes or you know who knows what. Definitely some of that, but I think it's you know very very small amount of hash uh, rate. So like bottom line is most of that hash rate in China is from you know smaller leaner operations that are uh, harder to detect. But like since last May in the past you know like year I guess there are you know headlines that pop up occasionally like the Chinese officials are taking this seriously and they're still seizing you Know hundreds of machines and thousands of machines and different busts, I guess you would call them, of illegal mining activity. So it's definitely, you know, not a mine friendly uh, place, which I guess also goes back to the reliability of this data. Like China hasn't just said, you know, okay, just kidding, the band's reversed, you can mine here again. So like 20% of Bitcoin's hatch rate just like went back to China overnight. No. So the problem is with the is with the data, not with you know the actual physical location of the hash rate in real life. And uh, I guess now's a good time to give a shout out to <clears throat> two reporters who reported seriously on this over the past year, uh, Wolfie uh, Zhao, who I guess is actually an analyst over at the block now. He was a reporter for a while. Uh, he wrote you know, several articles, at least a couple that I can think of, um, on the, the, you know, documenting the underground mining scene in China after the ban. And uh, McKenzie Siglos uh, over at CNBC, who also took these claims seriously and reported on China's underground mining scene after the ban, um, <clears throat> and I don't want to like speculate on how much of this influenced Cambridge's you know outcome this time, uh, but some of this, re- this news reporting was cited in their research, uh, which strikes me as you know a little bit backwards that the researchers are citing the journalists instead of you know maybe journalists citing the academic researchers, um, oh, but either really way. Point. Either way, I'm glad I got cited in, in Cambridge's, you know, up latest China mining analysis because it's it's great uh, reporting by both those people. So, um, yeah, shout out to Mackenzie and Wolfie.
0: Love that. Love love to see and hear that there are some good reporters who are finding their journalistic integrity as they go down these rabbit holes. Zach, I want to now spend some time just talking about data uh, more broadly, and then we can get into the nuances and specifics of like what we think is flawed in this data like i i consider myself a data nerd i, I do data analysis genuinely like for fun as a hobby and like one of the first things i was always taught is like if you put garbage in you're gonna get garbage out um so i'm kind of curious first off like how or why I mean, why isn't the right word but like at what step in this process whether it's the data collection from those who are collecting the data or those who are giving the data up like who do you think is more at fault for the bad data that we're now sort of talking about right here
2: yeah no that's a great question and you're definitely right like garbage in garbage out like data and research in general are only as reliable as the the quality of the methodology that's used to collect and analyze them right i think uh so a friend of mine Ethan Vera uh, uh, one of the co-founders of Luxer Mining uh was pretty vocal on Twitter after, you know, so we had the 0% hash rate for sort of like incident with Cambridge data getting a lot of notoriety. And then, you know, a couple weeks ago, we had like, poof, 20 plus percent is back. And Ethan went on Twitter and was like, mining pools just like lied to Cambridge, which I think is, is a, a key part of this and we can get to in a little bit. Um, but if you ask him that question, he would definitely say sort of the mining pools that like, I think there's like three or four pools that are. Contributing to Cambridge's research, uh, and you know, he he was pretty confident that they just like gave them bad data. Uh, but I think Cambridge, you know, collected some bad data on their own too. And like they have their methodology, you know, very detailed and published on their what is this called? The Bitcoin electricity consumption index. So on that page, they also have like their their mining map and hash distribution charts. And at the very top, the first assumption that they list is that the IP addresses of a mining facility are an accurate representation of the actual like physical geographic location of that mining activity. Well, I guess before we get to that, the second there's there's two problematic assumptions that they make with this data. The second one is, you know, that data provided by participating mining pools constitutes a representative sample of Bitcoin's total geographic hash rate distribution, which basically just says like we rely on the data mining pools give us to tell us like how Bitcoin's hash rate is distributed. If mining pools lie, well, they assume that lie to be a representative sample of the coins total hash rate uh, distribution. Like the, the biggest problem in my mind is like, it's trivial to relocate your hash rate uh, or your IP address, I guess, without actually physically relocating your hash rate. Um, like any miner can you know, sort of switch proxies or VPNs that they're using to mine with. Of course, like, like, you know, dozens of huge mining operations in China, like actually had to unplug their machines and relocate them either just into storage, which some miners did. They're just like, I mean, I don't know the reasoning, but like, you know, sort of seemed to like, fuck this, like, I'm not going to relocate this internationally. I'm just going to sit on these machines and wait for something to change. Or, you know, they actually did like ship them overseas, which was pretty, very expensive. And Actually, I guess now is actually even gotten more expensive. In the article I mentioned, you know, uh, an unlikely, but very realistic, uh, a very possible scenario where a miner in Mexico, you know, each quarter switches like the location of their VPN around the world to a different server. Cambridge would look at that data and assume that that miner has re- physically relocated their mining farm to each of those different countries every quarter, and include that in their data, um, which is you know is just absurd and of course this is hypothetical i'm not saying cambridge is absurd that they actually did that the hypothetical would lead their methodology to assume that actually happened uh which is absurd um so like right out of the gate i'm trying to think of how to best word this like you have obviously every research project has assumptions but at some point you kind of need a little bit of a reality check as to like okay, how, you know, like legitimate are these assumptions, like the the qualifications that we're putting, the parameters we're putting on this project, like, are these, like, do the assumptions actually make the final results reliable or not? And if not, then maybe we need to go back to the drawing board and find a fresh set of assumptions or a different data collection method, you know, because in my opinion, just from this first assumption that they list on their methodology page, the end result is, you know, completely compromised. So yeah, I guess that's... I don't know if we want to dive into that anymore but that's like one of the, the biggest problems i see from the data um it's just you know trivial to manipulate or change where your ip address says you're mining from uh it's very very expensive and difficult in most cases to actually move with your physical machines and actual hash rate somewhere else um and you know this isn't necessarily like, like it's cambridge's fault that they have this assumption and that they're using this to guide their data but it's not their fault that this actual data is difficult to collect. Like mining data, as I note in the article also, is very difficult to collect. And I don't pay much attention to the Bitcoin mining council at all, but they also got criticism for a similar set of data on miners, mining activity that they published. I think they try and publish it every quarter. Uh, I'm not really sure if they still doing that, but they got criticism for the methodology too, because like mining data is just difficult stuff. But all of that aside, it's not like an excuse for bad data. It gives some context to why the data is bad, you have to ask yourself, like, are these assumptions worthwhile uh, or do they actually, you know, undercut from the get-go the quality of the product we're trying to produce? Uh, and I think the answer is definitely yes, at least for this first assumption. So, yeah.
0: What, in, in your just opinion, would be a solution here? Like, who, who needs to be held more accountable or should should this just kind of operate as it sees fit? And, like, why do we need this data collected and shared with people?
2: Yeah, that's the big question, right? I'll admit, like, you know, for every every criticism someone lobs at, you know, research project or, you know, just like a, an industry product in general, it's always great to have like a solution. But in this case, you know, there aren't many great solutions for collecting this sort of data because like, for one thing, like miners just have very little incentive to publish this data on their own. And this kind of leans back into the history of the mining and the nature of the mining industry in general. Like mining is typically been you know a pretty like private industry uh like talk to any journalist who has covered the, mi- the bitcoin mining industry for you know more than like the past three years i guess and miners just like typically don't like talking to people like they just do their own thing unless you know they're selling like a product or service and they need like press or public coverage or something like that they just plug in their machines manage their hash rate manage pool services uh, everything they need to keep their operations up and running and I don't really care much about the outside world that, you know, that changed pretty significantly past, I guess, yeah, like three or four years uh, with the, you know, advent of very, very large publicly traded mining companies, And of course, publicly traded mining companies. They have shareholders to market to and regulators to interact with, you know, just broader markets to um, release information and updates and all these sorts of things too. Also a little bit of the geographic shift over to the Western world. Where you know some things are just more public culturally, um, but like mining has always been like very private, and the incentives just aren't there for miners to publish this data unless there's some you know exogenous incentive, like you're a publicly traded mining company, or you're operating you know maybe in North America where the regulatory environment is a little bit more unpredictable, and you want to like curry favor with regulators by self-publishing some data, those sorts of things. Um, so, you know, there aren't many great solutions. It's kind of like a, a, just a broken, uh, endeavor. I don't think like Cambridge's index is, you know, totally useless. I think in large part, their effort is valuable for showing like some of the problems with this data, but you know, that doesn't make the data more reliable. It's just kind of, it's just kind of tricky as it is, I guess, maybe we could jump down to the second assumption they make since we're talking about, you know, miners and their incentive to publish this data, like. Why are, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure, I'm not seeing it right in front of me, but their text is small. and I'm not reading it very carefully. I'm pretty sure they have like four pools contributing to this data. And obviously there are way more than four pools like in the Bitcoin mining industry. So why aren't more pools contributing um, to this? Oh uh, yeah, here we go. BC.com pool and VABDC and Foundry. Uh, like why aren't more pools contributing to this data? Well, I mean, they just really don't have an incentive to like, why would they? Um, Cambridge could offer stronger incentives and that could bolster the credibility of their data, maybe some degree, you know, some of like one of the big problems going back to what I mentioned, Ethan said on Twitter, is like for pretty much everything in Bitcoin, we say, obviously, don't trust, uh, verify. And Cambridge has very few tools to actually apply that rule to this project of theirs, like how they they basically have to trust that miners are telling them. That what miners are telling them is accurate. Where miners are saying their hash rate is is actually where it is. And if miners, you know, lie or, as I mentioned, you know, maybe conveniently fall into a narrative and don't want to broadcast publicly that uh, their hash rate is in what is now the most anti-mining like region in the world, they'll just say we have no hash rate there. And Cambridge will report, okay, there's no hash rate there. And then Bloomberg will pick up, there's no hash rate in China uh and you know that's that's sort of the food chain for this data so there, there's lots of problems with this and you know the, the lack of ability to actually verify what the mining pools are saying is accurate um and you know the small sample size of what mining pools are actually contributing to this because of the lack of incentives for more miners to participate just like sort of a whole bunch of compounding problems here that uh result in a less than ideal uh product so hopefully all that made sense i guess i don't I don't know how, how much of this is like inside speak to make sense in my head, but maybe it doesn't necessarily make sense when I say it out loud. Um, but those two assumptions I think are the most, are the biggest problems with Cambridge's project in my mind, the IP address uh, reliance and the small and lack of like just non incentivized participation from, from minors. So, well, yeah.
0: I'd like to spend a little bit of time on, on that second assumption because while the miners may not have necessarily an incentive to properly share the data that they have, why does someone like me necessarily need the data? Or even why does someone who's not even involved in the Bitcoin ecosystem necessarily need that data? Um, I'm not necessarily saying I'm for or against not sharing it. I'm just curious what your argument would be as to why that data does need to be shared and made public.
2: Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think like the easiest thing, like there's several answers. One part of it is like, you know, people like us just love to play with this data. Like it show, it gives us a little bit more granular perspective on the health and nature and like status quo of the Bitcoin network. And obviously Bitcoin mining is one of the most important like infrastructural parts of the Bitcoin economy. And like, it's natural to want to know more about like something you are involved in heavily and care a lot about. And at this point, you know, is supporting, like trillions of dollars in economic value every year. Hang on, just lost my train of thought. Let me get it back. Oh, there it is. Some This may be more helpful to understand like by way of analogy, it like trying to pinpoint this hash, like the geographic hash rate distribution and the incentives that go along with like why miners would want to report this is similar to like trying to pinpoint the geographic distribution of Bitcoin addresses. Like where in the world were all of these addresses used and where the payments sent and received from like, what incentive do bitcoin toddlers have to you know self-publish or to submit data to someone like cambridge the location where they created an address sent it or received bitcoin like there's basically no incentive right but that's along the same lines if cambridge was to you know run that study of bitcoin address geographic distribution that's along the same lines of this project um and you know some large exchanges or you know maybe you could get a couple thousand bitcoin users to submit their data is that a representative sample is that a trustworthy sample is it a verifiable sample um you know probably definitely not uh but to the point of incentives there's basically no incentive for anyone to participate in that at any sort of significant scale and the same is true of miners submitting their hash rate geographic information to something like Cambridge um there just isn't a strong enough incentive and maybe for some of these miners still, you know, they're steeped in, like, it's only been a couple of years, they're still steep of, of Bitcoin mining, you know, being much more public and, uh, like, friendly with the media and outspoken on these things. Mining was, you know, often in the shadows in many ways, and, you know, some miners just prefer to operate there uh, still, for sure. So, yeah, very little on
0: Do you think things like a country like China ban- coming out and at least saying they're banning mining or... state of new york creating more restrictions around how or what miners can do as far as energy uh energy sources go like do these type of events have a material effect on the way miners want to operate in the public space as a result and and if so what does that effect look like
2: yeah i think it's fair to assume like probably some at least some of the mining pools maybe not all four but at least some of them like just misrepresented their data to cambridge like I guess you just say lied. I don't really, you know, want to be too antagonistic, but so we'll settle for misrepresented, but that's like a clear example of the incentives that, you know, these policy changes can make for miners massive incentive to say nothing. Even if you have, you know, a non-zero amount of your hash rate still operational in China because the narrative is China hates mining. Now mining, power hash rate is leaving China. And then like, what would, what would the situation be? Like, oh, look at these two miners over here. They're still publicly saying that they have a lot of rate in China, let's focus all our attention on them and why they're still mining. And, and can we find out where they're mining and do they not care? Are they like, you know, just spitting in regulator's faces or like there would be hell for those miners. So like, why in the world would they say anything? I think stepping back even more and, and uh, shout out to Steve Barber from Upstream Data. He talks about this a lot. Um, Like the, the future of mining, even like step back beyond mining, the future of Bitcoin, from a regulatory perspective, will. And I'm not the only one who says this. This is I don't remember who like said this first, but like the future will probably get harder, more difficult before it gets easier. Uh, like we we love to say you know like we've won, and in theory like we have one, like we have the best money, we have the best ideas. But I, am pretty confident. You know, the future will get harder before it gets easier. So, what does that look like for miners? Well, you know, obviously, massive mining operations are crazy easy targets for these regulators who may not be as, you know, keen to support large mining operations. Okay, so who's left? The the small scale underground mining economy, I guess we can call it, uh, which is still obviously persisting in China. Um, and you know, what like who's to say like every country in the world won't implement their own like, variation of China's policy. We, we already saw it with tons of hash rate that migrated to Kazakhstan after the China ban. And now those miners are going through round two of this because although it wasn't like a blanket ban on mining by any means, there were severe restrictions and anti-mining policies and incentives that were uh, reneged on for miners that made their life incredibly difficult. And now miners that relocated from China to Kazakhstan in some cases, are having to relocate, find a third place to relocate to. And at some point, like the smallest scale miner just wins because they are you know, very difficult to find. And if they are found, very easy to relocate. We're talking like, you know, one to five, maybe 10 or 12 machines operational, uh, maybe a little bit larger than that. Um, but like very small scale, very easy to relocate, very easy to camouflage. And like the future of mining probably looks like uh more akin to an ASIC in every house instead of 50,000 ASIC mega farm in every state uh, of the US for example yeah that's kind of a rambly winding answer I hope that made sense but that's basically what I what the you know the, the path of least resistance for mining for hash rate to continue to grow is very very small scale, easily camouflaged or and or easily transportable uh, mining operations not, you know, mega mining farms, even though we have a lot of them today and they're great and very profitable. um, I don't think that's the future of Bitcoin mining Uh, as like a predominant source of hash rate for the network.
0: At the top of this year, we saw from a lot of these big public miners, a lot of promises about expanding their hash rate, uh, building out new operations and really building out I think just massive mining farms. But we're now slowly starting to see some of them pull back on some of those forecasts. You know, Core Scientific had to drop 10 total hash rate off of their projections by the end of this year. Uh, we've seen things such as supply chain issues as well as energy shortages get cited for some of these uh, holdups. I'm curious what you are equating or putting the most weight on as to why uh, some of these larger miners are having a harder time to get their operations up and running right now at least.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. And obviously, like we're, you know, we're in what, what I think are the early stages of, you know, the next Bitcoin bear market. And as the price drops, mining profitability also decreases. So, you know, on the one hand, it's sort of natural for these uh, expectations or for these projections um, to be revised and guidances to be altered. Um, I will say though, you know, there has been a ton of deployment by some of these public mining companies in North America over the past year Uh, and a good chunk of, well, I should say like these projects started and deployed over the past year, these are projects that have been planned for the past couple of years that are now coming online. Uh, Some of them, you know, delayed up up to that point by some of the issues you mentioned and a good chunk of, you know, the surge in hash rate that we saw after the massive drop from the China ban was not entirely... Chinese hash rate being relocated somewhere else and coming back online but in, in large part it was brand new hash rate in North America and other places around the world but predominantly North America coming online which is you know encouraging for many reasons but I think like the revisions and the projections you mentioned for some of these public miners predominantly is just a, a function of change in market dynamics like broader equity markets are slumping um, like the, the world is you know now having to digest di- fully digest, the massive amount of cash printed as a part of you know, the global coronavirus response efforts, and Bitcoin is I don't Bitcoin just hasn't grown enough in the past cycle to fully unshackle itself from those you know other global market movements, um, and so it, it's also along through the ride up and down, and you know right now it's down um, hash price, which is uh, sort of a derivative metric that reflects mining profitability. Is at its lowest point in, like, I think maybe two years or something. Um, hash price sort of reflects mining revenue, uh, like in dollars per terahash per second per day, because it's dropping, and it, you know everything else is dropping with it. Miners aren't as e- miners are in more survival mode than they are during you know heat of the bear market the bull market when everything's profitable, margins are thick. Um, those margins are starting to become thinner now, and you know actually we just saw yesterday like 4.3% drop in mining difficulty and obviously difficulty drops and hash rate drops. Uh, So that sort of, you know, indicates a little bit of a clip down in hash rate Um, and some of that hash rate coming offline may be because uh, in some cases like miners are getting squeezed out. Uh, Some miners that are, you know, operating with more expensive machines, higher electricity prices sort of entered later in the latest bull market. So like higher point of cost of entry for the mining operations, um, some of it may be, you know, some miners just preventatively bring a, a small amount of hash rate offline to limit expenses. For other reasons, it's hard to predict. But um, yeah, the bear market is definitely having an effect on these sorts of things, and I think that's by far the primary reason. As far as I know, there hasn't been, you know, any big like regulatory news for mining uh, that would cause hash rate to drop uh, by a couple percent. But yeah, it's uh, definitely a bear market, and in bear market, a miner's job, everyone's job, but particularly miners. Job is just to survive, uh, and we all hope miners survive because miners not only you know do they provide like an important function to the network, but like miners are the most bullish people in Bitcoin and operating in the Bitcoin economy. Um, they're the most heavily leveraged uh, entities in the market with all of the uh, operational expenses and capital expenditures that they have to incur to actually start mining uh, and continue mining miners are like the, the pinnacle of being bullish on Bitcoin. Um, and you know, in the bear market, their job, and everyone else's job is just to survive, uh, to be, you know, bullish again in the next, uh, bull cycle. So yeah, long answer again. Sorry about that.
0: No need to apologize. P I've been hijacking this conversation and I intend to just continue to hold Zach hostage to answer
1: all of my silly dumb questions here, unless you chime in. No, no, this Um, is great. I'm, uh, I can pay you no higher compliment than I have very little to say. One thought based on what you were just saying, actually, is, um, you know, as we enter into this bear market, this is a fantastic time for the average person to consider, you know, buying an older miner and basically starting to figure this out for themselves and and, uh, running some experiments. I'm curious what you think, Zach, in terms of, like, do you think that if somebody's interested in doing that, the time is now? Or do you think that the ASIC market is going to continue to uh, to go down, and there might be a more opportune time in three to six months, twelve months.
2: Yeah, the time I won't necessarily say the time is now. The time is probably soon. Uh, you don't need to be in a rush, I guess, would be the best answer because you know we're in a bear market, and one of the good things about the ASIC, uh, like mining hardware market in general, is that machine prices generally lag behind Bitcoin. So once Bitcoin starts to dive. Uh, you know, as you only see like a week or two, sometimes more uh, lag in time between when the ASIC market starts to decline. Also, and there are you know several reasons for that. But on the upside, like once Bitcoin, you know, maybe finds a bottom and starts going up again at whatever point in the future that will be, um, ASIC prices will probably stay at you know their like whatever lower price they are at then for you know at least a couple of days. Um, so you don't have to be in a rush. There's a little bit of a the lag there, and you can uh, you know, decide what your goals are with your mining operation. Um, I was at an event in Nashville recently with the final alchemist, um, and, uh, we were on separate panels talking about mining, but, uh, afterwards people came up to us and asked us for advice on mining. And I appreciated his answer. We both basically gave the same answer to everybody, which was you need to find, you know, figure out what your goals are if you're interested in mining, because there are so many ways to do it. And. Like, should, should you mine Bitcoin? I think the answer is definitely yes. But that's also a question like, should you buy Bitcoin? I think the answer is definitely yes. Okay, like how, how do you buy Bitcoin? Where do you buy it? How much do you buy it? Like, What frequency? All those questions, I don't have answers for because it depends on your goals and your, your situation. Um, I will say though, I, like the most common advice I get to people who are interested in mining is to spend right now, I think it's, you know, two to $300 to buy an old S9. Uh, Nate Miner S9, which is uh, Kaboomerax describes this as uh, like the AK-47 of mining hardware, which is to say like it's you know indestructible, it lasts forever, always be able to use it. Uh, Kaboomerax, by the way, is one of the best marketplaces for hardware, new and used. Um, and, you know, assuming like a couple hundred dollars won't break your, your budget, you are interested in mining, which if... Like you'll spend a lot more than $200 if you're serious about mining. So, you know, if, you, if that expense is a little bit prohibitive, then maybe this is not for you. Um, but buy an old S9, uh, plug it in, let it run for a little bit, figure out how to connect it to a pool, maybe install some custom firmware on it if you want to get really sophisticated. And then, you know, maybe unplug it and take it apart and see what's inside of it, figure out a little bit more hands-on of how the machine actually works. And as a result of that, you know, you might break it and might not be able to put it back together, but you'll learn a ton. So that's like the best advice I think I can give someone interested in starting to mine. And through that process, you'll learn, okay, do I actually want to like buy more of these machines? Do I want to run them myself? And if yes to the first, what type of machine do I want to buy? How big's my budget? And if no to the second, then what are, you know, some third-party hosted solutions that I could buy machines from and they'll run them. Uh, with, you know, probably a little bit higher electricity cost and no direct access from you. But like I said at the beginning of this answer, there's so many ways you can approach the question of, like, how do I mine Bitcoin uh, now? It's not always been that way, but thankfully now there are so many options. Um, I think the first the, the first and best way to get started is just buy an old reliable model like an S9, plug it in, run it a bit, take it apart. And then, you know, you'll have a lot more, knowledge to better answer the question for yourself of do I want to keep doing this um so yeah hope that helps
1: what do you think the um when do you think we will be in a world where asics are being mass produced from foundries at a level that makes it possible to create lower cost asics that are just ubiquitous and people can actually start using them in you know, their forced air heating systems. And when I say, actually, you can do that today, 100%. I just mean when it is economically feasible for the average person to to seriously consider doing that.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, there's some tension in like how to answer that question because it kind of depends on like what future you see for like the Bitcoin mining industry. Like, do you see it as, you know, like a a heavily commercialized uh, global high profile industry or do you see it, you know, kind of always being something that's more heavily reliant on an underground culture with, you know, some like very high profile commercial entities being involved in the industry, uh, but more like punk rock underground than heavily commercialized, uh, you know, widely marketed available mining uh, uh, industry. And I tend to lean more towards the second one of those two options, the more underground but there are like, they're already some cool, you know, in-home mining products uh, you can use. Like, I, I don't use them personally, so this isn't necessarily an endorsement, but it looks cool, at least on their website. Heatbit offers uh, like a space heater that's supposedly very quiet. You only have like 14 terahash as opposed to like even S9, which is, oh, actually this is embarrassing. I don't even remember the hash rate of an S9, uh, but it's a lot more than that. Let me just Google this really quick. Um, I want to say it's like 60 uh or, who, oh
1: wait who no, will win. i'm googling at the same time
2: and <laughs> minor is 14 terahash wait so what am i looking at uh okay let's see what the heat but that's what i was thinking. i was just comparing this to somebody before so i had it mixed up in my head keep it offers oh i just also they're not sponsoring me i've given them way more air time than i probably should <laughs> uh, i can't find on their website but it's you know a lot quieter they say it's a noise like a quiet
1: library i feel like if if one really so, cares about Bitcoin, you're willing to go deaf to support the network. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. Um, true. That's a that's a valid point. But <laughs> and then there's also people in Europe like wise mining for building much more sophisticated stuff that's not even widely usable yet. Um, for like water heating to basically use hashboards to heat your uh, whole like water system, I guess, in your house. Um
1: yeah. and Coin Heated is doing stuff with
2: Yeah, uh, Coin is doing cool stuff too. Right now, they're yeah. trying to you know, make whiskey with mining heat. Also, which oh, man. tastes good. But yeah, Absolutely. I don't. So yeah, they're they're cool guys. Uh, but to your question, I don't. You know, I don't know what the future looks like. Um, I think mining will be pushed more underground and more sort of small scale longer term, instead of you know always having these massive uh, public mining companies all over the world, especially in the U.S. markets. So yeah,
1: I'm not sure. What keeps you up at night when you're t- when with <laughs> Just in general. Also, what's your worst childhood memory? Uh, now, as it relates to mining, what is the thing? What's the? Uh, what's something that keeps you up at night?
2: That's a that's a good question. I like that question. I also the tricky one, I guess. Um, like mining is like mining, sort of like Bitcoin, is always you know going to be okay. Um, so I guess. On the one hand, there shouldn't really be much that keeps you up at night. Like, it's everything's going to be fine. But will there be, you know, more instances in the future of, like, large changes in the dynamic of the industry, like with the China mining ban? Like, probably, almost inevitably. Yeah, because definitely. because Bitcoin is, is, is still, like, young and growing. And so is mining along with it. And mining, out of probably every other sector in the Bitcoin economy, is probably the most like lagging and I don't want to say like immature, like underdeveloped, like least professionalized maybe is a way to characterize it. Um, Ooh, kinda, it. What do
1: you mean by least professionalized? Miners just kind of do their own thing.
2: And there's like exchanges and sort of what you would probably think of as more typical, like Bitcoin software companies and all these sorts of things have you know, much better, like, comms and marketing strategies and, you know, government relations teams. They spend, you know, millions and tens of millions of dollars on compliance and all these sorts of stuff, like these sort of norming budget allocations, I guess. Miners just kind of, like, I see the the normification of mining, I guess, in a huge way coming through, like, their partnerships with energy companies. Um, but, you know, for a while, mining has just, you know, kind of been, like, rogue counterparties, accumulating lots of hardware and, you know, neckbeards, building mining farms and playing around with different firmware. Um, But now it's, you know, sort of being pushed into the mainstream of Bitcoin's narrative um, in ways that, you know, hasn't been before. Um, So I I think it's definitely like growing up a bit, but, you know, other sectors in the Bitcoin economy did that before mining. Um, I don't know. I'm sure miners probably disagree with me on that, but that's just sort of personal opinion that I hold and seems to ring true in most cases, but nothing really keeps me up at night too much. I think there are lots of reasons for like large public miners to be kept up at night um, because in some ways they have the easiest job in mining. They just, you know, raise money buy machines and try to plug them in. They also have the hardest because they're the most public and high profile operators in the industry. Um, They have lots of responsibilities and regulatory obligations and all that stuff, you know, nobody really likes. So if I was a large public miner, I'd probably be up at night about more things than I am now, which right now it's, you know, pretty much zero. Um, I, I talk to and work with and interact with home miners, smaller scale miners, uh, the most, and they're great. Like life is great for them. Some of them, you know, maybe a little bit worried about like fair market conditions and operating costs and that sort of stuff, but they're all operating small to mid-sized farms, focusing on optimizing their operations and from every angle and, you know, planning for expansion through the bear market if they can afford it. Um, life life is still good for them. So yeah, nothing really keeps me up at night, I guess.
1: And what's your worst childhood memory? Oh Where's boy, worst childhood memory? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, a very question. stream, probably. but I do expect <laughs> you to answer it. No, I got it. Makes sense
0: we've got about a little less than 30 minutes left and if you'll entertain me you brought up something at the very beginning of this conversation that actually was a topic of conversation that we had on this show maybe yesterday or the day before of the idea of does it is it harmful to bitcoin should a nation state have within its borders or within its boundaries a majority of the hash rate and i present that question to you and will allow you to ramble as you see fit, but genuinely curious what your, your perspective is on that.
2: Yeah, no, it's a good question. Uh, and obviously something that not just miners, but everyone that watches Bitcoin uh, thinks about. And, you know, has talked about a lot because everyone watched for years China, cont- or not necessarily control, but just sort of represent, um, you know, uh, almost a majority of Bitcoin's hash rate. Um, I don't like... I feel like I've said this a couple of different places. Um, I couldn't tell you exactly where though. Um, oh I know I said it in a panel at least one place, a panel at Tone Vasis conference in Vegas. I don't think we'll ever see a country sort of take China's spot with, you know, 50 or more percent of Bitcoin's hash rate. I think that era of one country controlling the majority of hash rate is over for sure. Um, just because, you know, China kind of opened the floodgates and gave up a huge share of the market and around the same time we were in the heat of the bull market, I do sometimes wonder what would have happened if China made that ban during, you know, like a bear market where profitability was low, some miners getting squeezed out of the market. Maybe nobody cared about mining or cared about Bitcoin, like what would have happened? Um, things probably would have played out, you know, similarly, but I doubt if we would have gotten that much media attention and all sorts of other types of attention. Political attention from people in the U.S. Anyway, that's beside the point. I think uh, we'll never see that again. But I don't think it's dangerous for like a country. I definitely think it's not advantageous to the network, though, um, which is why I think you know miners around the world understand the incentives of the industry they operate in, and they're working to find cheap energy wherever they can. And there's still you know lots of hardware in the market waiting to be plugged in and trying to find a spot to be plugged in. Um, I guess like you could. Again, it's kind of ironic saying this in the conversation about mining data being notoriously hard to collect, but my guess is that there's probably like 20% of all mining hardware that you know has been purchased and shipped is just like sitting offline waiting to be plugged in or trying for with their with their owner who's trying to find a place to plug them in. Uh, and you know, we see in filing some large public mining companies sitting on lots of mining hardware that they just can't plug in yet. So there's still like an appetite to plug this stuff in. You mentioned some... You know, revisions and guidance, and expansion plans from some of the public miners, and that's definitely the case. But there's still lots of hardware out there, and miners are still actively looking for the cheapest energy they can find, and that won't really, you know, change ever. Ash rate will always continue to go up into the right, uh, with some, you know, occasional dips along the way. But um, I don't, I don't see it as harmful to the, to the, to the country, the government itself. Uh, but it, yeah, it's definitely harmful to the network. And I'm I, I'm glad, I think pretty much everyone is glad that that era of China having that much hash rate is over. And I don't think we'll ever really see that again happen somewhere else.
0: I'm curious though, like in the same way that New York can change its mind and pass new legislation or China can go out and, and reverse a decision, is it not something that the Bitcoin network at large at least needs to be conscious of when you have a country like china have almost 60 percent of the hash rate or the u.s ha- starting to like really creep up and have like this majority hash rate like what happens if, if i don't know congress just decides to start pushing forward very aggressive anti-mining legislation or says something to the tune of in the same way that they took everyone's gold and it, it was a necessity for the for the future of the country it's a necessity for every bitcoin miner to be turned over to the hands of the government and now the us government or some other foreign nation is in charge of or in control of a significant portion of
1: rate. like is that not like am i just being hyperbolic here am i being i think too dramatic i think you're being hyperbolic i think that we have seen that happen in the past multiple times right Ch- the number of times china i remember so vividly when china first tried to ban bitcoin and the market like was like oh shit, dog and just like started tanking right and then the second time it happened, people were like, I mean, it was fine last time. And the third time it was like, uh, the fourth time it was like, we, I mean, what, this doesn't even matter. The fifth time, it, you know what I mean? It, it just, it, it, it wasn't actually, now more recently they banned mining, which was unique to be fair, but countries have been trying to ban Bitcoin, uh, almost since its inception and it never quite works out. And I think that, um, the question is a valid one, but I think if anything was going to have this catastrophic effect, it would have been the recent, you know, China ban. And when mining starts to become centralized in any uh, political region—that is to say, a country or uh, a geographical region—and that's significant because you know, if enough miners are in a single place, then that creates. Uh, risk to the network in terms of like a tsunami or a giant earthquake that kills all the power and stuff like that. um, It does create some element of risk. And right now, you know, the majority of hash rate, as I understand it, is in the United States. um, But the incentives tend to drive miners to multiple places in the world. And so, you know, if there's, as soon as there is cheaper power or more favorable legislation in another part of the country or in another part of the world, miners will migrate to that area or rather Miners that are in that area will uh, start to succeed more and amass more ASICs and things like that. So, I think it all goes back to the incentives, and I think that I mean it would be a huge blow if the United States um, decided to suddenly you know ban mining. But I think the chance of that actually happening is just astronomically small. I think it's like asking you know wh- what would happen if a meteor slammed into Washington D.C. and just erased it off the face of the Earth. You know, it's like, I mean, I guess that is statistically possible, but it is very, very, very improbable. And that has to do with, again, those incentives, right? I just, I think that uh, it's something that we need to be aware of, but I don't think it's something that we need to specifically lose sleep over. Um, Unless we saw like 80% of the network moves to Georgia or something like that, you know, then I'd be like, oh, shit, we got a problem. But I I just don't think it's ever going to happen. Zach, what do you think?
2: Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I think there are, you know, definitely some countries that have a much lower percentage chance of, you know, taking some sort of negative regulatory stance against mining than others. Um, but I would also like I, you know, sort of, you know, never rule it out anywhere because politicians are fickle and regulatory regulators can be unpredictable. Um, so, like, I agree with you on the point of like, will the U.S. sort of ever you know, imitate the China ban we saw a year ago, probably not like very, very low percentage chance, but I wouldn't put it at zero uh, either. Um, And like you said, the incentives uh, for miners to relocate, you know, pretty much anywhere else will always be there as long as the Bitcoin network is there and, you know, miners can operate profitably. When one country kicks them out, like other countries will, you know, almost inevitably welcome them in. So, like, as, you know, we see hash rate continue to go up and to the right, will there be, you know, like, occasional dips, maybe for regulatory reasons because of something else like China? Sure. Yeah, probably. Like, is the U.S. the top of the list of candidates for people to cause a dip like that? I mean, I, I think pretty obviously not. But I also think, like, between North America... Or in North America, between Canada and the U.S., we we'll probably never see like more than forty percent of hash rate in this region, and you know probably less than thirty to forty percent in either one of those countries uh, on their own. But if we start getting up to those numbers or past them, um, I think that you know would be concern for or cause for concern because um, you know that's a lot of hash rate we're getting right back. That would be a signal that we're sort of getting back to the centralization of of what we. Saw for or what we experienced for years with China, but everything's getting more distributed. Not just hash rate, uh, hardware manufacturing and ASIC uh, production is also getting more distributed. Um, so the chances of another like it's not really catastrophic. The network's fine for a bit. It was you know kind of chaotic, but I'll just say chaotic or catastrophic. Another catastrophic event in China. China's ban. Uh, the probability of that happening again, like probably you know relatively low, but also zero. It could happen again miners will go offline, try and relocate when they can, and the network will be fine. So um, blocks come every 10 minutes, regardless of how much hash rate there is. Uh, well, actually that's not necessarily true because difficulty will have to adjust, but uh, assuming adjusted difficulty, blocks come every 10 minutes, uh, almost regardless of any other uh, exogenous factors. So um, the network will be fine regardless of what happens. Um, and we love to see hash rate go up, it means the network's more secure, more computing power being paid for to secure the network and process transactions and mint new Bitcoins, but even if hash rate drops, um, everything will still be okay, so,
1: yeah. Q, in short, you're being a worrywart, don't even, don't trip dog. <laughs> hey,
2: but it's, it's good to worry about, um, like, some people don't worry about it enough, which is why Austin Storms, our great galaxy mining, talks about this a lot. People, you know, for a bit, just basically treat, some miners treated, you know, mining in North America and mining in Kazakhstan as, you know, basically of equal regulatory risk. Because historically, for like a bit, Kazakhstan was like very pro-miner, very friendly. They created tax incentives. They basically gave miners free reign. Um, And then they started having problems with some of their energy markets and, you know, how much of that was caused by miners. Is a little bit of an open question. Um, but then they started pulling some of these incentives, cracking down and capping on how much Wait, new money activity,
1: a little Sorry bit about. or a lot of it, uh,
2: a, a little bit, like, you know, miners definitely were using a lot of energy, but also like, you know, they weren't the only consumers of energy in Kazakhstan. So they were just sort of like an easy scapegoat. Um, in some cases, Kazakhstan started limiting, you know, how much new, how much new hash rate, how many new mining farms could be built in their borders. And miners you know very quickly realize that there is real geopolitical risks operating in one jurisdiction versus another and right now in north america especially the u.s miners don't have the same level of risk as miners operating in kazakhstan um and you know for a while some miners just didn't really add that risk into their uh calculations for like where to operate uh so definitely not out of place to worry but i definitely think there is a ranking for you know how much worry each each location like uh, each country deserves, and the U.S. right now is, isn't at the top of that list. But you know who knows? Um, the U.S. and pretty much every other country is undergoing massive political changes left and right. So, uh, like, basically the reason why I never write off any country to replicate something like China did for miners last May is because the future of politics, the future of politics is extremely unpredictable. Um, so anything could happen, really.
1: All right. I got a random question for you, and this is an important one. Okay. <laughs> what animal do you think best exemplifies the Bitcoin network?
2: Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, like, I'll be honest, I think the honey badger is a pretty good one, but the guys over at Cathedral, um, also another public mining companies, we like public mining companies, but, you know, they aren't our favorite type of miner. Um they like to, they said their goal is to be the cockroaches of Bitcoin mining, uh, which is, you know, small, I guess, it, they are off-grade mining, so I guess the small makes sense. Basically, you know, like, indestructible and, like, eternally enduring. You can never, like, really kill a cockroach, except, like, if a meteor strikes or, like, nuclear war, I guess. Although, are they, like, supposed to survive nuclear war, too? I don't really know. Yeah, I was about um, to say,
0: like, that's, like, the whole stupid thing about cockroaches. You can't nuke them.
2: There you go. Yeah, okay. I mean, yeah. Now, whether... Now, whether or not like Bitcoin miners can survive a nuclear holocaust, I think that's probably a little bit more questionable, but it's a good aspiration. So I'll go with cockroach, probably. I think that's like I, I they as far as I know, they were the first ones to sort of come up with that brand into like mining cockroaches. But uh <laughs> yeah, good good analogy for sure.
1: I would have to say mine is the naked mole rat. Um they're super they're they're super strange, they're mammals. Uh, <laughs> but you know, most rodents, which is what a naked mole rat is. They only live for like two to five years, depending on the road. And there's some that live longer. Naked mole rats live for 30 years. They also are completely immune to cancer. And uh, they are completely insensitive to pain. They have no pain receptors, no nosoreceptors. I feel like also they look look like weird as shit, you know? Yeah, I just Uh, Googled an image of one. I uh, haven't seen this before. Yeah, it looks like a testicle with teeth, basically.
2: (laughs) It Uh, does. This is sort of... What I imagine reply guys on Twitter saying mean things look like, it probably look like
1: <laughs> this. I mean, you're, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. <laughs> um, yeah, they're super weird. They're also the only known like hive organism in, uh, in mammals, um, which I feel like is also a good analogy for the Bitcoin network. Uh, hmm. Yeah, they basically live forever. They can't die with cancer. Uh, not forever, 30 years. Uh, they, they feel no pain. And uh, they are part of this larger network. And without that network, they cease to exist.
2: I agree with all those reasons. I think the cockroach is good just for basically one reason. They're like hard to destroy, but there's lots of reasons why naked mole rat seems like a good animal. But one thing that it doesn't have is it doesn't look as cool as a honey badger. So the visuals there are a little bit lacking, although That's... it does look pretty like demonic and evil. Like I wouldn't want to mess around with one of these things. It just looks <laughs> creepy. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I like all those reasons. I uh, should have a, uh, have a public poll and have people pick.
1: Let me show you my naked mole rat tattoo. No, I'm kidding. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna, no, I'm gonna change, that's cool. I'm going to change Thanks. my background. I mean, cool. <laughs> this is not a, that interesting of a question, you know, but, uh, it occurred to me and I wanted to know your opinion. So I appreciate no, it. No, I like, well, I mean, so I actually don't even people. know.
2: There's probably like some lore to how we got. Maybe this is embarrassing that I don't know, but I don't know like where the honey badger came from. Um, is it just like, I don't know, did it come from Bitcoin talk form somewhere back in the day? I don't know. But maybe we need a new animal mascot. My, my background uh, is now a naked mole <laughs> rat.
1: You're welcome. Yeah, man.
2: see, like, I've never messed with that thing. Never messed with Bitcoin either, I guess.
0: Shout out Kim Possible. <laughs> naked mole rat that was on Kim. Like, that's the only reason I know what a naked mole rat is. The the extent and detail in which I just learned about this. I hate you so much, P. You love it.
1: All right. No what, what's next? Although
0: I I do at this point need because like Chris is throwing some like wildly outlandish claims in a private chat that I'm just gonna like dox you because I don't believe this. But he claims that the best way to kill a cockroach is with a vacuum.
1: But like really? I don't
0: know. I don't know why, but for whatever reason in my head, I'm genuinely convinced that even if I vacuum a cockroach up,
1: it's, like, still alive in there. For sure. The problem with that, too, is that you only suck up one cockroach. Like, <clears> or <throat> the rest of them. You know, cockroaches, uh, the again, they're like this, like, they're not actually a hive organism, but they... There's a lot Dude, of... Dude, no. I, like, I have such a disgusting story that I'm going to
0: share it with you. It's going to give me a nightmare tonight. Like, I'm going to look like <laughs> shit tomorrow. But... When I studied abroad in Australia, like me and my buddies were just living in a house off campus and I'm in the kitchen. I scream like a little bitch. Oh my god, there's a cockroach. There's two. Oh my god, there's three. So like I'm like hiding behind the counter, my two roommates like go into the go into the kitchen with like a broom. They try to get it. They kill one. I think they kill two and then another one like crawls back into the cupboard. Mind you, like these are like big cockroaches we're in australia so like it's already big to begin with i go back to cooking in the kitchen not even five minutes later and a cockroach that i swear on my fucking life is larger than my fist crawls out from under the cupboard and i scream ran to my room lock the door i was like i don't care the cockroach wins i do not like that they, they get the kitchen I'm not stepping foot in our kitchen for the rest of the semester. So I don't care if you don't think they're hive creatures. That was a fucking mom piss that we killed the kids. And I'm like fully convinced it was it was going to kill us. A cockroach was going to kill me. Well, Austra- no sh- Australian cockroach.
2: Yeah. Everything's more demonic down in Australia. I know some of the spiders you guys have down there too. That's insane. Um, no shade to crisp, but I Googled best way to kill a cockroach and family handyman 13 best ways to kill cockroaches doesn't include a vacuum so but also this entire list just looks like shilling cockroach products so maybe somebody paid and no vacuum companies were interested in paying for a spot in this article
1: look Um, i figured it out chris is part of big cockroach and he's trying to give us (laughs) the solutions which actually don't solve the problem in fact make it worse so disinformation
2: yeah yeah, cockroach disinformation
0: yeah, well,
1: n- Now that I'm getting slandered, I got to come on here and clarify. <laughs> I had an engineering professor and don't trust but verify. He's like the best way to, to get them is you like quite literally vacuum them up with a vacuum. Q thought like you're bashing them with the vacuum. I mean, I guess that would work, but uh, like vacuum them up to catch them as they don't slip away in the cupboards. And then he was like, you actually use like a, a tank under vacuum conditions and they can't survive without oxygen so he's like yeah you know you guys are engineers you just throw them in a tank put them into you know vacuum conditions and they they suffocate it's like pretty gruesome way but it gets rid of them for sure
2: (laughs) oh well there. okay there's some science behind that then i i i I don't question your professor i was definitely skeptical on sucking up a cockroach in a vacuum to kill it but i didn't want to i had to google it just to be sure i didn't
1: yeah, he was the double vacuum technique. You vacuum up to catch him, then you put that bag in a tank, and then put it under vacuum conditions, and they suffocate in like 30 minutes. Like, do it for whatever. He like said 30 minutes to be sure, so that way Q doesn't have to freak out when they reanimate. This is the most <laughs> impractical way to kill cockroaches I've ever heard in my life. Again, naked mole rats are the solution to this problem. An ASIC on the back of every naked mole rat, you're good to go. Uh, there you go. Zach, I want to ask you, one thing that I, I wonder about is, like, what are the next... What is the next kind of evolution or the direction from a technical and engineering perspective that you know, we're going to see in terms of ASICs? Uh, one thing that I've heard is you know, ASICs that are specialized to perform best or optimized for specific environmental conditions. So having ASIC miners that uh, you know, are optimized for and tweaked for desert environments versus you know, cold weather environments, things like that, um, what, what do you think about that? Is, that? is that something that's viable or even interesting?
2: Yeah, you could see um, some types of hardware like that. Uh, even a little bit more broadly, you could see like what, like a general category of maybe like these boutique types of basics that sort of have additional design considerations for some of those climates you mentioned, uh, or variations in climate wherever they're running, or just general um, like enclosure environments in general, like a home environment or a large data center environment, or maybe. Um, I don't know, some sort of other industrial environment. Um, I think, like, at least for the next several years, uh, maybe measured in halvings, the next several halvings, like, the the, the hardware we have now is going to be the best uh, that is on the market. Um, and I think even, like, the new entrants, like, you have to consider the fact that the current ace manufacturers right now have years and years of R&D and tech that they've already, you know, tested and, work through to get to the ASICs we have today on the market. And it's cool to see a bunch of new ASIC companies coming into the market with other ideas for different mining hardware products. Um, but they're still gonna have a steep learning curve ahead of them with like refining those products and making them viable. And uh, like nothing's worse than buying a brand new, like a batch of brand new ASICs with you know like 50% failure rate. You're gonna have a lot to prove, even more to prove then to miners if you, you know, get off on the wrong foot. Um, but, but but like some of the designs may just not be great in general. Like, you know, you've seen one of the market's leading manufacturers with their sort of native immersion mining units. I don't remember exactly what it's called, but it has like the hoses on the side, plastic hoses and all these sorts of things. Like I would personally never run that machine. Um, and there are like, you know, a handful of environments that would just be horrible for that machine. Um, because plastic hates nothing more than cold and hot. So kind of have to can only run those machines, which are very expensive, by the way, and brand new, who knows what their failure rate is, um, in like, you know, the perfect climate. Um, so like, you're probably better off just buying their other machines or buying some what's miners uh, and running them under, you know, normal operating conditions on, on a clean rack with good ventilation or an immersion tank. Uh, with dialectic fluid it you know kind of depends on your preference but um people are definitely going to get more experimental with the hardware um like how expensive they're going to be how reliable they're going to be you know like like how good they're going to be is still you know very much an open question and i'm not you know super impressed with the the newest ASIC, the immersion unit whatever it's called from uh from bitmain but you know maybe some people out there love it most miners i've talked to aren't even like crazy about it it's a cool idea and you know they're clearly trying to capture some of the the trendiness of immersion cooling in mining right now which is definitely a strong trend but not sure that hardware is is the that particular model is the best piece of hardware on the market so can't recommend it but i've never run it so maybe it's amazing i don't know it's brand new
0: zach i want to before we wrap things up today give you the opportunity to maybe touch on or share anything um that we just didn't ask you or that you wanted to highlight
2: um yeah it's a good question i think um like i'll show brains i guess a little bit i not really show brains just this telegram chat if you are a miner and you have any questions about like mining monitoring tools or custom firmware which i guess is one of the products are most popular for um any other general mining questions like the brains mining telegram is pretty active and like you know most of the team is in there chatting with miners even bigger mining group though which has nothing to do with brains uh, which I love to show any chance I get, is the Home Mining Wizards group that w- was started by some of the guys at Upstream Data and I think maybe one other company was involved, not really sure, but it was definitely Steve Barber's brainchild. Um, and you know, there's like thousands of the small scale sort of flexible cockroach tech miners we've talked about multiple times in this conversation in that group, sharing tips and tricks with each other for like managing electricity uh, and, you know, relationship with your utility provider to like constructing do-it-yourself immersion builds um, to just like general performance optimization techniques uh, for sort of any smaller scale at home mining operation. Great, like I'm assuming most of the audience for this conversation probably isn't like, you know, deep in the weeds of mining, but if anything we've talked about, as piqued your curiosity, that group is definitely like a good spot to go for starters to see some of the stuff, you know, Smaller scale hobbyist miners talk about and how they work through some of the issues you'll probably encounter if you start mining, um, all that sort of stuff. So home mining wizards on Telegram, it's a public group, anybody can join. Um, yeah, that's about it. Thanks for having me on, guys. Super fun conversation.
0: No, this was great, Zach. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you know, we know that you've got a uh, plenty of articles coming up, and you'll surely be joining us again. Uh, where can our audience stay up to date with your latest articles that you have coming out?
2: For sure, yeah. So I tweet out most of them from just my personal Twitter account, uh, and they're all also archived. Uh, I have an author page on on Bitcoin Magazine website. Um, so either of those two places are good. If you just want the articles, probably just go to the Bitcoin Magazine website, because my Twitter is also heavily diluted with ramblings and shitposting and that sort of stuff. So uh, yeah, those are pretty much the places.
1: Diluted, I would define it as enhanced additional <laughs> flavor.
2: Sure, definitely a lot of additional flavor—that's for sure.
1: Zach, thank you so much for taking the time to join us
0: today.